My guest today is Matt Tepper. Matt Tepper is the editorial director at Google, where he is the leader and co-founder of the Google Inc. editorial team. The team is responsible for defining and redefining the Google voice on all of Google's primary content platforms, including the keyword blog and social channels, as well as in major speeches, executive presentations, op-eds, and all manner of creative and editorial work. You know, just a small job. I'm super tired just reciting all of that. Matt came to Google in 2012 from the White House, where he served as then Vice President Joe Biden's chief speechwriter for the first three plus years of the Obama administration. He has no plans to go back to Washington, but he wishes his former boss well in his new job. For Matt's next job, he hopes to become the offensive coordinator for the Green Bay Packers. (laughs) He has a bachelor's in journalism degree from the University of Texas and a JD from the University of Wisconsin. Matt currently lives in Palo Alto with his wife, Jamie, daughters, Devin and Perry, and a truly ridiculous dog named Mona. There are many highlights from our conversation today. First, Matt kicks off the conversation talking about his unconventional path to success, bartending, backpacking around Europe, food critiquing, and attending law school before moving to DC and ending up essentially living on Air Force Two as a speechwriter for Vice President Biden. This is just a teaser of what's to come in this episode. Next, we discuss how being open to and taking a chance on opportunities that came his way created an unexpected career pathway for him. He is not afraid to admit that luck and timing has been a huge part of his journey, and I totally relate to that. And the more open you are to whatever opportunities come your way, the, the, like, the better off you're going to be. Your mind is open to those things, and it's just like everything else follows. After his time at the White House, he decided to take on a new adventure, and he was told that with his experience, he could literally go anywhere and do anything. However, he realized that his childhood dream of playing in the NBA probably wasn't a viable option, and he settled on working at Google, where he wouldn't have to wear a suit and tie ever again. (laughs) Stay tuned to the end, where he walks us through how he founded Google Inc., I-N-K, and crafted the voice of Google and shares some of the biggest challenges he's faced throughout. And just an FYI, if you're listening with little runs around, this episode is unbeeped to preserve the original carefree spirit of our conversation. I hope you enjoy this one. Matt Tepper, thank you so much for being on the Bet on Yourself podcast today. I'm really, really excited to chat with you again. I'm excited to chat with you too, Anne. So you and I have known each other for a long time, but there might be some listeners out there who aren't familiar with your career. So I actually want to go way, way back. And actually, I probably don't know the answers to my first couple of questions. I wonder if we can start at the beginning. Like, what did young Matt think he was going to do with his life? What did you want to be when you were when you were small? Well, we're going way back. Um, (laughs) I, (laughs) well, it definitely wasn't like editorial director at a search engine that didn't exist at the time. I can tell you that. Um, (laughs) Like, honestly, I was not, I don't know how to put, like, I was not a career driven youth. I think I like uh, my, I wanted to play professional basketball. That was pretty much, that was pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Or, or any, like my life revolved around sports, watching sports, playing sports. Um, I obviously was never really on a track to play professional basketball, but like that, that it was like, you know, you're, when you're little, that's, yeah. you're, you're only thinking as far ahead as kind of like the next activity. And that, that was me. I, I did enjoy writing 
it's sort of like the stuff I was better at. I, when I was in high school, I was the like, uh, I wrote with like two of my friends, we were the food critics for the high school paper. So no we way. would like, yeah, so we would drive around and like test out like who had the best fried chicken in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay, wait, <laughs> did you guys give yourself that assignment or was that given to you? Cause that's genius. No, I, I think it was us. I think we would come up with our, like whatever we were gonna test next and then write our food criticism about it. So that was probably like my first real foray into any kind of like writing or journalism. But I love I, at no point was I like, oh, this is where I'm gonna aim my career, you know? <laughs> no. So, okay, so writing kind of was an evolution for you as a career track. Um, where did you, what did you end up studying in undergrad? Where did you study? What did you study? What was a bit of your, that early education path like for you? Yeah, for so I went to undergrad in Austin, Texas at the University of Texas. Um, and I, my undergrad degree was in journalism. And so I did like follow that path pretty tightly, I guess, once, yeah. once I got there. And I started taking, like the, Texas has pretty, I mean, I'd say it's a good journalism school, but they let me through, so <laughs> I'm not sure. But um, they had a reputation. I took a few of like the intro classes. I enjoyed them, did well, and like sort of made my way through that program. And uh, they had like specific branches. You are like, you know, you had to take like a track within journalism and there were a bunch of different ones. And mine was magazine journalism. So I specifically have have my my degree is in it's a bachelor's of journalism and it is specifically built around magazines I, that's fascinating i actually haven't heard of the those focuses within journalism before uh what's the difference between magazine specialization and and other types for example is it different specifically than new, newspaper like or is it there no no there's there there was like a there's a magazine there was a newspaper there was broadcast there was um pr i think was within journalism um there were a couple different other ones i think magazine was longer form like feature writing a lot of that okay. and we everyone had to go through like a design course like a graphic design course to and you had and like we basically had to design a magazine or i think some others had to design other formats you know that's so cool. It seems like a really progressive like program when they were kind of anticipating this fuller experience, fuller skill set that goes along with writing longer form content. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, this was seriously, I mean, this is the, the mid 90s so or late 90s. So we're right at the beginning of the web in any kind of like real sense. You know, I'm not sure what they were anticipating or what they were seeing, but whatever it was, it, yeah, it prepared, prepared me for all kinds of different stuff. So do you feel like, what was your path between you've, you've finished your degree in journalism, focusing on magazine print, not anticipating that this thing called the internet was about to disrupt that in a very major way. Um, well, what was your path between that and then when you and I met at Google? So you ended up in politics first. I remember that very well. That was before Google. What, what led you from journalism and then into your role with Joe Biden? Oh, well, all right. So there's there's a whole chunk of stuff missing there. Well, one is right after college, I went to London and bartended for a chunk of time. Get and out then, of here. Do you have a signature yeah. drink? What's your specialty? Well, I mean, for, <laughs> <laughs> for, 
for me, I just like to sip on whiskey. Okay. But like, so for, but if you showed up at my house, I could make you whatever you wanted. What's, what's your signature drink? What, what would you, if you were to order a drink right now, what would you order? Well, if I was trying to impress somebody or order something really expensive, I like an aviation, uh, yeah. which is nice, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't drink anything that fancy on a regular basis, like a nice gin and tonic or an Aperol spritz. I think I I got turned on to Aperol spritz when I moved to the Google London office for a summer because the whole comms and um, uh, policy team were drinking that that summer. I hadn't really appreciated any of the bitters like before that. I'm but um, Yeah. yeah, so I think those are those are my two go to's at the moment. This weekend I was making for friends who were over, I made these white Negronis, which is, Ooh. it's basically like gin and Lillet and this like ginger lemon bitter liqueur. And they were, it was good. It was, you, if you like gin based cocktails, which it sounds like you do, then. I do. I do. Next time you're here, Anne, we'll do it. Okay. All right. I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. Sorry. I digress. Yeah. I just did not know your bartending pass. So, okay. And basically like in between, I, w- I ended up going to law school. And in between undergrad and law school, I bartended in London and backpacked around Europe for like nine months of my life or something. something and was the before. goal there just to get some interna- international experience to kind of break up undergrad before you went to a master's yeah, level? Yeah. I mean, it was it was just to like, I knew I was like heading into law school, sort of like a little more of the real world. And then to like get to get, you know, like have a last, I went with like a couple of buddies. We had a blast. We bartended our hours were crazy. We backpacked around Europe. I saw all kinds of cool stuff. I met all kinds of incredible people. It was just like one of those like chunks of your life that is short relatively, but like shapes you in interesting ways going forward. Couldn't agree more. I moved to Sweden when I was 20 and, you know, stayed for a year and a half, almost two years like an entire lifetime worth of experience packed into that. I just think that's such an important part of my evolution and something I was really glad that was a emphasis in my family. My dad had lived in Austria when he was young. Every single one of my siblings, except for one, we speak foreign languages fluently and have all lived abroad. And I think that just really shapes you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So then Um, you have your time abroad. You, you go back to plan a you do law school. What was it's the intention crashing. with law school? What was your goal? I'm not totally sure at that point. I was like, I mean, I, so I was pretty sure I didn't, I didn't want to practice law in like the very technical, practical sense. I didn't want to just practice local newspaper journalism or whatever I could have come out and done at that point. I went to the University of Wisconsin, Madison, which, so I'm, from there and the sort of like very practical thing that provided was like in-state tuition. So I wasn't going to have to come out of law school and, you know, handcuff myself to some giant corporate job just to pay off my law school debt. Very wise. Yeah. So knowing that it wasn't necessarily what I was dying to do. So I used it, you know, like I spent three more years on like a cool college campus where I learned all kinds of stuff. Wisconsin has like a good law program where they like allow you to take PhD level courses outside of the law school and get law school credit for them. So I, I don't know, I kind of like took advantage of the, the situation there and made the most of those few years, learned some stuff, decided I wanted to try to like get into kind of the political end of law and writing and policy and move to DC to do that. And that's when it's sort of like 
I started really building a career in, I was writing, I was writing speeches. Well, the first thing I was doing, I was, I was hired by a, a nonprofit there to do um, this anti-gun violence campaign that like it to start it up. And it was related to sports. It was called coaches against gun violence. It was, this was now almost 20 years ago, which is fucking crazy. And then from there, I started writing more and more, trying to do writing and editing projects where they would let me. I met one speech writer who let me, who had been around for a while, who let me kind of like write a few things for him. I started writing speeches. I eventually moved into the political, the creative department of a political consulting firm, doing all kinds of writing, both for executives, different corporate client executives, and for the brands themselves, um, like web copywriting and stuff like that. And then from there, I got my first full-time speech writing gig for the the head of a, another big nonprofit there. And then from there, I started, you know, I, I met some people who were doing campaign work. I I helped out on a couple of different campaigns. I did a couple of things for John Kerry's 2004 campaign. And then come 2008, one of my friends, someone I had worked with on other projects, his firm was contracted to be the chief speech writer for whoever Barack Obama chose as his his vice presidential nominee. So it turned out to be Joe Biden. My friend went on the road and did the whole campaign. Um, and then when when they got to the White House during the transition, he was like, do you want me to put your name in for, for this? Because he, he was going back to his day job. And I was like, of course. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I actually, I had written something. I wrote something first to for the president, or the, I guess he was the president-elect, mm-hmm. and he, they did not want me. So then we went, <laughs> we went to the, to the vice president, uh, vice president-elect, and yeah, and it all somehow, it all somehow worked. I don't know. It was crazy. We got there sort of, you know, like right, right at, and then that was the beginning of the administration. So basically wow. at the beginning, 2009, early 2009, and I was working with then Vice President Biden, like every day, nonstop, traveling everywhere. I was living on Air Force Two, basically, which sounds sounds much more glamorous than it is. It's like really cool for like the first yeah. couple hours of like a <laughs> three and a half year adventure. But um, it's more, it's basically a flying office. And I was flying everywhere. I mean, I was, I was all over the place. It was one, yeah, another one of those experiences that three years is nothing really, but like is the most, I mean, when it comes to careers, is the most formative experience by far. And then I would, like now, I guess I've been raising two maniac little girls for going on 12 years now. So that's probably more of a formative experience, but I would put this right behind there. Professionally, yeah. I yeah. just think it's incredible. I love this pattern. And and this is one thing that's really coming out for me across the different interviews I've done on this podcast is how seemingly small opportunities that you create for yourself, like raising your hand, being like, hey, I'd love to try writing for that or um, choosing projects or really cultivating your network and helping people be exposed to your talent, even when it's in its rawest form. I mean, you probably never imagined on those early projects that that would lead you to living on a in a mobile office that was Air Force Two, working for the vice president of the United States. You you But you created step-by-step these small moments of serendipity just by being brave enough to put your work out there and learn in the trenches. Yeah. I mean, like brave enough, dumb enough. I'm not sure what it is. It's like, it's like, uh, and you make it seem like so much more intentional than it ever was. Right. Like that I, that I had this like long-term strategy and like these kind of, this kind of like staircase that 
right. went up in that direction. It's like, I would just do what I would do, do what felt right, and then hope it worked out. And oh my gosh. I know. Like my career, I get asked that all the time of like, how did you, how did you um, craft this plan to work for three of the most influential CEOs in the entire world? I'm like, that is not how it happened. Yeah, <laughs> just, exactly. You're just exactly. working really hard. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. There, even when I was at the White House, it's not like I ever was like, I need to go work in tech next. Like it wasn't, you know, like these, these steps kind of like present themselves to you. I think that's the, that's probably the key. I mean, I'd say this too to like anyone who asks about career stuff. It's like you're the more like planning you do around it, like the less, the more likely you're <laughs> going to be disappointed, you know, if it doesn't follow like a very strict path. And the more open you are to whatever opportunities come your way, the like the better off you're going to be. You're just like your 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 mind is open to those things, and it's just like everything else follows. I could not agree more. Oh, I mean, looking back, I I talk about this quote all the time on the podcast, but I think it's really true. Like um, when Steve Jobs said in his commencement address that all, oftentimes the dots only connect in retrospect, like in those yeah. moments, I have no idea where I'm going with this or, you know, this seemingly invisible work that you're doing in the late nights, researching or self-imposed homework or, or honing your craft to get it ready for something else. I didn't know what that next thing was going to be. The only thing I could control was how hard I worked and how much I cared and what, what reputation I was building for myself. That's it. Yeah. I, I mean, that's all you can do. And like you, I think you, you used the word serendipity before and mm -hmm. like luck and timing is a huge part of any of this. Right. Like, I don't, I mean, it just, I was at a certain point in my career. I knew some of the right people, someone like the right people got to office. Like I've been in DC for eight years and the, or for at that point. Yeah. No, six years, something like that. And the, the whole time, the sort of like, opposite ideological party was in charge so like i i didn't right. have like it's not like i would have the opportunities like weren't there slash it wasn't for me anyway and then it took like all of these things to kind of come together there at one time for it to make any sense at all and like that and then to be lucky mm -hmm. within that like some of it you have to like make happen on your own obviously and some of it is based on like whatever kind of talent you've developed in your career but a lot of it really is just luck and timing so much so that's absolutely been true for me as well and for the people i've worked for i know their careers look really glamorous on the outside and everything seems to have been perfectly crafted in line for success i know better than anyone that was not how any of that yeah. went down yeah. definitely <laughs> So I'm curious, as you think about your time at the White House and living on Air Force Two, is there a story that comes to mind when you're thinking about those moments of serendipity where an opportunity came up or you volunteered for something not realizing like how big or impactful that was gonna become? I mean, <laughs> sort of at the beginning, like we, so we had been working together now, I think it would, be, would have been like about a year early on. And we were about to introduce the president at the signing of, the um, the healthcare bill, right, Obamacare, and that was the biggest legislative achievement of the first term. But I think they consider it the biggest le legislative achievement of his time there. And so this was he was going to introduce the president. He had a couple minutes. It was going to be like the highest profile thing that we had really done up to that point because we had done a bunch of stuff sort of separately. But this was like huge landmark achievement. He'd be there too had his role. So it was the kind of thing that he and I, he only had two minutes and we wrote it up and we went back and forth on it. And I remember being up late with him going through it all and like making sure that, you know, 
he had every little word and phrase figured out. He, like this, that's not the way we operated on every speech, but like for these really big tight ones, he wanted to get them exactly right. And you know, we're up late, we do it. He goes, he does the two minutes, he sort of nails it. And then like right there is where you get the like big fucking deal thing that blew everything out. Like that was the news of the day basically. And it was yes. like, it was like one of those things where it's like, he just said it better than I literally, like we wrote, we spent a million hours fixing the little things around these two minutes of, of sort of like political rhetoric and fluff. And he just encapsulated it perfectly. And I should have just written that to begin oh. with. But it's like, it's like one of those where it's like, especially in politics, especially at that level, like you can't plan for shit, you know? Yeah. You, you just can't. Like who knows what's gonna happen? You have to be ready for anything. Um, I think it's it, it was a moment, I don't know if that's considered serendipity, it didn't spark my career in any way, but it was one of those eye-opening moment, moments where yeah. it's like, man, you've really got to be, not, none of this none of this really matters. Yes, yes. It, it is those rare moments when you pause and in the moment, you know that this is a moment that you're going to think about for like the rest of your life. Like this, you are witnessing history. It's rare for me. Often it's like in reflection, I see the lessons I learned from an individual challenge or, or experience or something. There's a couple moments and those are special when you kind of want to hit pause and just be like, I have to savor this. I need to take a mental yeah. photograph. This is historic. I'm going to tell my kids about this. <laughs> well, the big, the big fucking deal thing. And I'm sorry if this is like turning into an R-rated podcast. No, know, go for it. It is a big fucking uh, deal. Yeah. No, it was right. And, but that's lived on forever in his, like, it's part of his legacy now, too. Yeah. even as the president, it's still part of his legacy. And like, I was literally in the room, like I was right there, you know, and I'm like, wow, I, I can still wow. look back and be like, it was crazy at the time. And it was funny. And it would sort of encapsulate it all. And it was like chaotic because like all of a sudden that became the messaging of the day. And then like, I, and it just encapsulated all of the like true insanity of working at a place like that at that time. I can only imagine. I've, I, you know, across my career, I've, I've uh, collaborated with a lot of White House projects. Cannot imagine that being my daily like existence. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I, I wonder, what is it like for you? Are you having a weird full circle moment now that Joe Biden is the president? Is that, how does that feel for you? Having been there at his side for so much of the time? Well, I mean, I, yeah, when I left now almost 10 years ago to come to Google, I, I really didn't think we would be at this point where it would be like that experience would be extra relevant right now. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm proud of him, you know? I'm proud of him, I'm proud of, I mean, he's surrounded by a lot of people I know who've done wonderful work. Like, yeah. I was, like a lot of people, sort of dismayed with the four years that came most recently. And I believe there's no better person to sort of like put us back on track than him. Yeah. And then, the, and, the, and honestly, the people around him, he's surrounded by some like real geniuses with good hearts. And like, that is what we need now more than anything, so. Yes. I'm, that, ha I'm happy, you know? That is what we need now more than anything. In fact, I sent you a sincere, heartfelt text on the day of the storming of the cap. No, it was a, a tweet. I tweeted you um, on the day of the storming of the Capitol when they were trying to ratify the vote. And um, I just was crushed. I was here in Spain. I was about to go to bed. All that chaos broke out. I was literally crying um, because I just yeah. felt like I was watching my 
country officially be dismantled um, after four years of enduring just constant heartache and terror. And I sincerely, I was really like looking to you, Matt, as someone who knows this new president, please tell me he can handle this. That's how I felt in yeah. that moment. And so it's so yeah. reassuring to hear that the right adults are finally in the room <laughs> and that you're confident. Yeah, I mean, no one, this is another thing. I mean, it's, it's not like anyone's trained to handle what happened on January 6th. Like, I mean, that, that that's just, it's just like, beyond anyone's imagination really. And yes, truly horrifying for anyone who really cares about the shit that we care about. Um, but yes, I would say like he was the right one to come in and as part of, I mean, like there were a lot of messes to clean up that being one of them. And I think it's still being cleaned up, but yeah, he's, and I think he's proven that so far, right? Like, I don't know what yeah. the view from Spain is like, but no, it's here, I'm also like, look, I'm in California. I am physically, geographically spiritually emotionally pretty far away from where i was in washington and like i'm i like it looks good from here i know that like it's still crazy there there's it's still really difficult to get things done there's a lot of like just shit that's part of the political process now and yeah. my friends are like working through it and he's working through it and all all of that but like from here it seems seems at least a lot better than it was yeah. I just am happy to not have the constant question I'm asked being based here in Europe now of like, uh, explain to me how this is like happening in your country. Really glad that's not my daily experience anymore. Cause I was just yeah. like, I can't, I cannot explain what's happening to my beloved country, but it did make my separation anxiety a little bit easier that, you know, to be outside of the country during the Trump years that that did help my homesickness a bit. Yeah, I'm sure it did. And like, yeah. I even just being in, even being in California, like helped, you know, I, like, yeah. although it was the problem, the problem with that is like, anyone who works in comms on the West Coast over mm. those four years, it's like, you'd wake up every day, to and harm. the world would be on fire. Every, like every day, something new was on fire. And like, or he tweeted something or said something and it just like it completely just like shook up whatever was going on in your world because like that's yeah. the way things worked so hi there i just wanted to take a quick break from this fascinating conversation to invite you to buy my book bet on yourself it's available wherever you like to buy books in bet on yourself I'll take you on a deep dive into the best practices I collected by watching the exceptional careers of my CEO mentors, including Jeff Bezos, Marissa Meyer, and Eric Schmidt. I also share stories of what it was like to work at Amazon and Google during the foundational years of those companies and the internet. I use my own career as a case study for how to translate the habits of these super performers into any career at any stage and within any industry. I also attempt to answer the question of why all three of these celebrity CEOs chose to partner with me in order to fulfill their most ambitious goals and how I am now going to do the same for you. While these stories are fun and fascinating, what I hope for most is that you will walk away not only inspired, but with a playbook for how you can take action, recover from setbacks, and create your own wild adventures and joy-filled success stories, and a work life centered around your personal mission and values. Okay, let's get back to the podcast interview and more examples of how taking even seemingly small bets on yourself can lead to extraordinary results. So yeah. let's transition to that. Let's talk about how did, I actually don't remember this, or maybe I don't know the answer. How did you transition from the White House to Google? Were you recruited? Did you apply? Were you aiming to switch coasts? How did you end up in tech? 
those are all very good questions. And like everything else, the answer is usually like, no, there was no like intentionality behind any of it. For context, with the White House, a lot of people basically stick around for like, it's like two and out is pretty good. It's like two years. It's it's so chaotic and it's so crazy. And you could be like anyone who's working there, like at a relative, you know, at like a certain level, like you, you could be working half as hard and make twice as much doing almost like anything else, you know? Um, which is like, I'm, I'm fine with those. I'm fine with working half as hard and I'm definitely fine with making more money. Like these, this is not like not everything has to be like purely out of the goodness of your own heart, you know? Right. So two and out is a pretty like typical run. I was there for three and a half, basically like three plus. And like, mm-hmm. I, I had like, it was, it was a lot. It was, it was yeah. like a pretty amazing time. It was a lot. Like my, my daughter, my first daughter was, my wife was pregnant with her when, during the transition, when I got the job. So, so she was born in June of 2009. So she was one of the first like White House babies, Aww. basically. There was, there was no, at least for the vice president's office, there was no paternity leave. I was the first paternity leave. They were just like, I don't know, come back in a couple of weeks, you know? <laughs> so like, so then I go back, you know, she's born. I spend three years basically not seeing her, you know, like, yeah. I, like I blink and she's almost three years old. My wife's pregnant with our second kid. And it's mm-hmm. like, all right, this is the time now where I either like have to, st- and it's the middle of, 2012 or the beginning of 2012 and it's like if I, I can't just like leave what with the reelect coming up like I've got to like really if I'm going to leave I've got to do it sort of soon mm-hmm. and also we if we're really going to rip things up and sort of start over somewhere now is the last chance I mean it's never the last chance but like that's sort of the way we viewed it right we were in DC we'd been there for a while my wife's from New York I'm from Wisconsin there was, it was nothing like necessarily tying us down to DC but besides mm-hmm. the fact that we lived there for so long and like, you know, had a network of friends, some family, but it was like, you know, if we're going to go somewhere, like, let's go somewhere. And I, and then I like cast as wide a net as possible. You know, everyone's like, you know, you leave this job at the White House, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. And I'm like, that's such bullshit. It's like, okay, I want to play in the NBA. I want to play in the NBA. Let's do it. Right. Like, is that going to work? I don't think it's going to work. So short of that, like, okay, what is really available to me? And I did meet some cool people. Like I, you know, I was meeting people who worked at agencies on like really cool, interesting, creative political campaigns. I like met the president of HBO who was like, you should go work on one of our shows, Mm. Um, which like that sounded really cool, but less stable. Um, I did get a call from a Google recruiter, like some I had met with someone who used to work in the DC office, who was a former Clinton speechwriter, worked in the DC Google office. And he gave my resume to a recruiter who then we started talking and next thing I know, like that seemed to be the best. I was talking to other brands, but like basically the best combination of kind of stable job. Uh, moving to California was really appealing to us to like try it out. Like I think my wife and I both wanted to see, like it just seemed, it, it, there was something alluring about being in California. Yeah. Um, and it was like, it seemed sort of flexible enough in the sense that like, well, A, I wasn't gonna be just like traveling around the world non or around the country non-stop i'd be able to see my family i this is going to sound like a little ridiculous or tongue-in-cheek but like i desperately did not want to wear a suit and tie like sort of <laughs> ever again and it was like part of my thinking there was there was another job for another major brand and they wanted me and it would it was it was sort of to do something a little more similar to what i was doing with the vice president um, with their CEO and involved a lot of travel and I would have had to wear a suit and tie. And I'm like, I'm like, screw that. Like I'm 
I'm done, you know? And like, if I can wear like sneakers and jeans and a t-shirt and be like, I, I, it's like, yeah. it's weird, but like you, I'm not a suit and tie person. Like, you know me, not everyone mm-hmm. listening here knows, but like, that is not, that's not the way I roll. And no. it's like, you feel like you're wearing a costume every day. And like, yeah. I just didn't want to wear a costume anymore. Well, you did go to the polar opposite where I think our only official dress code policy is you must wear shoes, which was written yeah. because Sergey doesn't wear shoes. Right, 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 right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and now with COVID, it's basically like I'm just like in slippers and flip flops yeah. like all day long anyway. So right. um, that brought me out there. And it was this idea that I could like go and try my hand at like different, like I, for so long, I was just like the dude who just typed shit, you yeah. know, like I was just somewhere. I mean, I was probably pretty good at it, but like I was still just pretty one track focused. Like I had a speech to write. I'd work with the vice president or whoever it was at the time. We would bang it out. I would I would just be like typing things and then we'd move on to the next project. And then I think when I was hired, I was sort of promised to be able to do all kinds of, or like try my hand at different kinds of writing and different kinds of projects. Some of it, including speech writing for our collective former boss, Eric, but also running our internal news site and then eventually moving into like our broader owned content blogs and our social media and stuff like that. So um, that part kind of came true. Like I, I I did some, I, you know, when when you and I worked together with Eric and I was writing for him, it, it was like a way for me to hold on to my past a little bit and do something that I was comfortable mm-hmm. with. But at the same time, I didn't want it to like define me or be yeah. all like I wanted to I wanted to try different things and Google turned out to be a place that allowed me to do that which was a promise that they sort of made at the beginning that ended up coming true you know Yeah I really love that your impact has been so broad and so long um so you co-founded something called Project Inc that I think is really like interesting I wonder if you wouldn't mind explaining that cuz I think it might be a good illustration of this this um, way you were reinventing, repackaging, and distributing your skills for this larger impact than just being a single voice for a, a person or a cause, but really influencing the space in a larger way. Yeah, it's Google Inc. with a K. So it's like a, sort of a play on Google Inc., I-N-C. And what we are is really just like a central editorial team within the broader comms team. And I think like, so what, what it stems from is basically like, there, you know, we put out a million different things and we, we used to at least, and like we, as a company, like Google does a lot and we talk about a lot and there was no sort of central authority looking over like how we talked about all those things sort of holistically and where we where we kind of put them as a brand, like where physically you would find our news, right? Or where we would share our news. And so over time there, you know, over the last now, so I was there for about a year and a half before I started, I, I joined up with this woman, Emily Wood, who sort of was one of your predecessors. She was. In the CEO's office. Um, and, she, and she was sort of running our blog and our social at the time. Our, our social at that point was just a Twitter feed that would point people to our blog posts. And the blog was just a blogger blog that was chronologically listing all of our different, what amounted to like slightly glorified press releases. And so what, what we wanted to do was build that out where there was actual voice there where like all of these disparate things followed the same kind of voice principles. They all like lived up to the Google voice and what people sort of expected of us to make it interesting and cool and fun and quirky and match sort of the curiosity of the people who use Google in our tools to do all kinds of crazy and incredible things. And I think as we started putting that together, 
then the entire world of like owned content started to grow up around us. So social media got much bigger. So we, you know, we branched out. We we turned our, you know, we we do more with our Twitter feed now than we did back then. We, you know, we've got a lot going on on Instagram. We're like thinking through like what what is what does TikTok look like at Google? Like you know, like it's now corporate communications goes out on all of these platforms that we can speak directly to our users and our consumers and our anyone who's journalists, anyone who's interested, like directly. And I think like as that's grown, like we've sort of built the team to keep up with the, those trends, you know, where like our, our influence has grown, not necessarily through any, again, like intentionality on our parts. It was besides like demonstrating that like we know what we're doing and we're sort of like instinctually good at this stuff. It's like, um, that this world has gone, like the, the, this entire world of social media and owned content has has exploded, and like we're a part of that, and we're a brand that people care about in that world. So like, how do we make the best possible content for all of these various platforms that yeah. people now want? It's incredible. I cannot keep up. I got to tell you, like right now I'm trying to, <laughs> but what I think you and Emily did so beautifully there in the foundation of this was creating, as you described that fun, quirky, interesting, smart voice where across all the platforms, you feel like you're having an authentic, consistent experience. I find that very hard to do personally. I'm, I'm working on that. Like I know my Twitter audience is slightly different than my LinkedIn audience, which is very different from the Instagram audience. And but having a core message of everything feeling very organic and authentic and, and real um, is very tricky. And I, I do think you've crafted this beautiful voice, this consistent experience while representing a very complex and global brand that is not easy to just simplify down no. into a single perspective or voice or because the users are literally everyone on the planet, which is hard to capture. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the the tools and the products and everything we do is all over the place and sort of like is appealing to certain segments of the, those. And I think like one thing, first of all, like all of the credit really goes to like Emily and others on the team who like we you know we've hired people who like really understand social media in ways that I I'm I'm an old man at this point like I'm not that's I've I've learned so much about this stuff but like yeah. there are like <laughs> real experts who have grown up around it in a way wow. that I didn't, who like, they teach me everything. So to the extent that I know what I'm talking about, it all comes from like the amazing kind of like creative writers and editors and content creators we have on the mm -hmm. team who just like know how to produce cool shit and make it all work, you know? And like, yeah. my job is just to like, make sure it, we, we keep doing it and keep growing. And the, the one thing I, I say this a lot, it's like sort of what you were saying, like, I'm glad you find it all kind of like interesting and fun and conversational and funny and creative like that. Cause like, that's what sort of people thought or that's what people think of when they think of Google or hopefully they do or yeah. they did especially when I got there to the extent that we're not matching that like we're using jargon or we're just kind of like putting out corporate statements without building life around it we're not we're, we're letting that capital erode like the idea that these people that the, the world sort of expects us to be these great things it's like it's much harder to be Bank of America and do cool shit on Twitter than yeah. it is no, but like the, the the more you don't do the cool shit, the more you like chip away at it, and then it becomes becomes harder to do the cool shit. So the main point is like, we should just be doing cool shit all the time, and like this is what people expect of us. That is like a wonderful place to be. Companies would like most brands would kill to be in that position, and like we better not squander. 
So yeah, I think it's really fun, but it's still an enormous challenge to be fun and quirky and influential and cool and and aspirational and, and be this brand that everyone feels like they have a personal relationship with. You make it look easy from the outside. And I know for a fact, you all work really hard and are very thoughtful about how um, everything's going to be received. As we're wrapping up our conversation, which this time has flown by already, I, I miss our chats. This is always so- I know, I know. It's good, good hanging out again, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if, um, as you're thinking about your time at Google, and it's been a while now, um, is there a particular challenge or have, has there been a project or, or a skill set or an evolution of the tech space? As you reflect on your time so far, what do you think of when you think of the biggest challenges that you faced in this part of your career? It's, it's funny. It's like, so I, one thing we sort of, I, I didn't quite get into when we talked about moving from the White House to Google is that like, I don't care about tech. I mean, I care about this company. I care about the brand. I think we're incredible and we do amazing things. I do, it is not like, yeah. I'm not an engineer, you know, like I do not come at it from that angle at all. There are other things that appeal to me about the company and the brand specifically, but the idea that I'm in Silicon Valley because I, I have this like deep abiding love for like form factors on Android phones is like <laughs> not, it's not reality. Right. So, um, I relate to that. I too, yeah. the people, the mission, but I, I didn't study engineering. I had no intention of ever working in tech at all, let alone for like 15 years for the most impactful companies in history. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And like the, so like I came from politics, that is where my job was built into like the foundational DNA of any kind of like modern political initiative, right? Like I was a speechwriter, I was a communications people. I think like there is no, and, and like my most, you know, working for the vice president and I was working with like a, you know, a politician who had been around for a while, very successful, polished, good yeah. communicator, fundamentally understood that like you win elections and policy battles through communications, like the, and, and through yeah. the words that you use and say. Coming to Google, it's like, it wasn't that when I first got there, it was like you, it, I mean, it's still not, but it's like you build the best products and then everything else sort of follows and that makes total sense. But what that means for someone in my position is like, I'm coming from all this polish and you and I, like, I think it worked well. Like we worked for Eric who turned out, you know, he was as far as engineers and Silicon Valley leaders, like very, very polished, like more, yeah. much more so than the rest of them where like, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, and I'm not saying this about Google execs necessarily, but like you see it all over the place and friends I talk to who also deal with similar things. It's like, there's this strange, um, if you're not like mumbling into your hoodie, you're not being authentic. You know, there's this <laughs> tension between like being good and being authentic and authenticity and actual like good, clear, polished language are somehow like at odds. And that yeah. was like a tough thing for me to like get my head around after having been part of this like polished machine for so long where everyone knew that polish was good and didn't necessarily undermine your authenticity. Like you could be good and authentic at the same time. Um, I think like we like it that's you know over the years that's sort of changed people i mean just everything even in politics has gotten more casual and authentic um yeah which is maybe one of the bright spots or something one of the uh like legacies of the four years that came before these most recent years that i mm -hmm. think like actually might maintain and is good for everybody 
um, but sort of like stuck with me that like the like polish per se isn't always good, but like authenticity is, and like figuring out where those two, mm. where like the sweet spot is between those things, like makes a lot of sense. And it, it just like, it puts you in a place where you're just like speaking clearly, you're speaking in like human tones, you're avoiding corporate language, like all of that. And it, it all just point, it pointed me in this like general direction of how to approach voice for the company and for any execs that I still work with or any of the writing that I would do. I think like the other, the other thing that Google, I don't know if this really gets to your initial question. The main, one, one of the things that, like, you know, I told you that they sort of promised, I mean, this wasn't like contractual or anything, but like <laughs> promised that I'd be able to like write different things or work on different things and try my hand at different, you know, I wasn't just like writing speeches. I was working in internal news. I would, you know, I ended up writing, you know, like thinking about tweet copy and like other things that I just like had no idea about. But like one of the, the, the like probably the most valuable thing that I've learned or like muscles that I've exercised that I didn't know I had is this sort of like entrepreneurial muscles that come along with building a team from scratch, which like yeah. that was not, yeah, I didn't come in being like, this is what I want to do. I didn't even really like think about it that way. And like all of a sudden I'm, I'm leading a team of, you know, there were just two of us and then a few volunteers and like, mm -hmm. how do I build that into something? Um, and that requires like a lot of like this like entrepreneurial muscle where you have to like um, demonstrate your value, right? And then like advocate yep. for resources. And then, you know, within that is like a managerial muscle that I hadn't necessarily beyond like working with interns when I was like an absentee intern father traveling around the world, you know, like I, like I, it was, it was like, it's, it's those, and those are the muscles I use the most now. Like, I mean, I'm probably like the people I'm surrounded by are much better writers than I ever was. And like, I don't know if I could even like spell my name if you like put it in, you know, put a keyboard in front of me. I, I just like, I used up all my words at some point. And, uh, but like, I do have to like manage some people through right now, like a really difficult time in everyone's life. And I've got to like keep fighting for resources and we've got to like keep up what we're doing. So, you know, this, as I said, like this stuff is more important now than it's ever been. And like, it's our job to like make it good and to do cool shit. And like, that's, I keep saying that cause that's like really what we want to do. It's just like, let's create, let's do cool shit. Let's, yeah. let's like, you know, let's like, make all this happen. And I think like, I, I have to like, um, you know, like use whatever kind of skills I have to like move people in that direction. And that's interesting to me. Cause I was not that again, I was just typing shit. <laughs> Matt, I just think I'm, my brain is so spinning. Thank you. I feel like you've given us such gold here in, in that answer, because I'm hearing really don't overpolish, let your authentic voice come through, just make cool shit and people will follow. When I think about the, um, the thought leaders that I admire most, they are people who are very real, like Brene Brown, Adam Grant, Obama, um, Sarah Blakely, these are people who show the messy side of what seems so glamorous and perfect on the outside. And I feel like I relate to that because I, I saw that modeled by your team. I just so enjoyed working with you all who were really focused on the connection with our end users more than looking perfect or pretending we had all the answers. And then the other thing that really stands out to me as a best practice and what you just shared is being an entrepreneur even in, or especially when you're in a major organization that can otherwise get slow and stagnant and you can get kind of lost in the fray and then suddenly there's all this bureaucracy. But the fact that you've been such an entrepreneur of, of having these entrepreneurial attitudes towards 
creating, crafting, and building a team that never existed before and, and kind of anticipating where the future of comms needed to be and building that before those skills were needed. I think it's just such a beautiful example. And so many people really need to lean into that right now. Their companies might have stagnated or might be really struggling in this moment of pivot. There's a lot more that we can as, as employees, regardless of our, our seniority or, or level of a formal power that you can do to be really proactive on that side. So I just thank you. I, I really love both of those observations. I think that could really help a lot of people. Yeah, I think like my, my pleasure. I'm glad you pulled that stuff out because I'm just rambling and like you seem to make more sense than I ever did. But like, again, it's one of those like you you give me a lot more kind of strategic sense than I actually have. Like I <laughs> did not anticipate when I first started putting the editorial team together that like it would grow like that like central editorial owned content was going to become as important as it is, particularly for tech companies who the press isn't quite as friendly to us as they were. So like yeah. making making it around them, like it's not like I foresaw all of that. I did see that there was a need and that there were some holes and like I might as well plug them as I'm trying to think through what it is, you know? And like it sort of has kind of elevated since then. But mm -hmm. again, it was, it was the same idea of just being like open to new things and not planning too much in advance and following apps and like one other thing about you know like people using their authentic voice like this 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 is something i talk about a lot too this that comes from joe biden more than anything where like you know you're a speechwriter at the white house you can somehow get like overtaken by like the grandeur of it all and like writing things in these like hallowed tones that like really don't <laughs> sound like anyone would actually speak and um and then on the flip side you're dealing with like you know some pretty like arcane policy things and yeah. uh, just like really specific details that for, for specific audiences that aren't exactly what you're speaking to at any given moment. And like he would always look at things and say like, speak English, speak English, speak English. And that's not like a language specific thing. It's not like it could be any language, but like yeah. it's what yeah. he's saying is basically like speak human, you know, like, like this is like, I'm here talking to these people. Like I would never say this. Like, speak human and like that's what we that's our number one voice principle with google voice it's like it's got to sound like it's coming from a human there was like at some point and you see this on like linkedin a lot too or like you know when people are sort of like writing their own manifestos it's like <laughs> at some point a hundred and some years ago like some dude at a corporation and i'm sure it was a dude he like started writing shit in a language that like separated from the way that they would talk and it became like the official language of how corporations and brands speak but it makes no sense like it, there's no point in it unless you're really trying to like hide what you're trying to say which i guess yeah. there's some companies that are actually <laughs> trying to do that but like as a person out there in the world trying to like put yourself forward for you to speak in that kind of like banal corporate mm. jargony voice makes no sense because it's like you're not separating yourself from anything so yeah. like as a brand, we try to separate ourselves. But if you're really talking about like people listening here and how they present themselves, like, I mean, there's, I bet there's some company somewhere that really appreciates you talking in some like stilted jargon and <laughs> completely masking who you are as a person. But like as someone who like talks to a lot of people who are looking to make career moves and reads a lot of writing samples and it's like if you if you're speaking in that language, then there's like no place for you for us. Right. I so yeah, just, just be yourself, be yourself, bet yeah. on yourself. Yes, thank you.
product placement. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, I want to be respectful of your time. And I also just want to ask you 100 more questions. I mean, I'm, I'm good a little bit longer if you want to chat. Like I, like, I really appreciate it. I just yeah. wonder if I can ask you my favorite uh, last question, because I think it's a nice segue from what you were just pre- presenting about authenticity and using your voice and your individual talents and really just having embracing that entrepreneurial spirit. I wonder what is giving you the most hope or joy for the future? We're coming out of some dark times. We've been through a lot. Um, what is your hope? What's your moment of joy that gets you out of bed and excited about what you're working on next? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's so look, if we're talking like, really, what gives me, yeah, what gives really. me joy? Like I, I, so I mentioned how, you know, I'm still gunning for a career in the NBA, but short <laughs> of that, I, I am a diehard Milwaukee Bucks fan and have been my entire life. And they just won the NBA title. So I am like, floating on waves of joy that are going to last me a long time strictly from that it's like if you if if That's you ever right. wanted to give some like terrible news like now is probably <laughs> the time to do it you oh, know i love it um yeah no no it's it's like so that that's that that's like the simple answer right like i mean i <laughs> it, it's been that's something like my family and i shared together over the last six weeks like watching that team yeah do what they did and like the roller coaster of it all and it just like showed what happens when you like i mean there was a point where they finally like sort of clinched things and i screamed and like you know me but most of these people don't and like we were in a hotel we were on vacation in (laughs) south carolina and i screamed and one of my daughters came in and she was like dad you don't you don't have emotion i think is what she said (laughs) it was just like so maybe it's not ideal that she said that but like i mean this, this it just shows like what kind of like sort of like explosive joy that and release oh. that situation gave me um and it's like it was something obviously we've all been stuck at home for so long it's like yeah. you need to find these things and this is something i've cared about for so long um as far as work goes like assuming i'm not going to be playing for a championship i think mm-hmm. like what i was saying about like this constant push on my team to do cool shit and like to have the kind of like the permission to do it the people above me encouraging me to do it is like it keeps me going it's like we I like, I mean, like I've said this before, it's like if you showed me a job description of my job, I would want my job, you know, which is like a, it's a pretty like fortunate place to be, right? So um, it's, it's like I, it, and the more that I can grow with it and help the people around me grow and the more cool stuff we can do, like that, that keeps me going, you know, and I'm not wearing a suit. (laughs) <laughs> and you you can wear slippers to work i can wear slippers yeah <laughs> matt that's the most beautiful like that's a goosebump moment you have found a place <laughs> where you can have emotional explosive joy in your life and you are living in your zone of genius your job description is w- what you want to be doing most in this world Thank you for sharing that. Well, One, not most in this world, but I would, okay. I would, I would, yeah. All right. Yes. Yeah, NBA want. aside, NBA aside. Right, right. <laughs> I just think I love, gosh, this is why I feel so lucky with my network. I love being surrounded by people who've put in the hustle, made their mistakes, worked insanely hard. I remember when I met you, you looked real tired after like three and a half years <laughs> living on Air Force Two. But you yeah you've crafted something that really reflects your values, the family balance you want, the lifestyle balance that you want. I love seeing people reach that zone. 
And it doesn't come easy and it doesn't come early or often, but when you find it, uh, I just, I get such a thrill out of being surrounded by people who have found their place. And, um, and I think it's because you're constantly disrupting yourself. You're not getting complacent or stagnant that comes from constant reinvention. And I find that really inspiring. So thank you. Yeah. 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 And the reinvention is, is like, it's good because I'm, I'm obviously at a place that I like, so I don't have to reinvent myself by leaving and starting yeah. over somewhere and reinvent myself like in the current spot. And like, exactly. that is a valuable place to be too. So yeah, that allows me to focus on all the, the bucks and my family and all the outside stuff. That's it's right. like, I can keep myself busy and there's enough friction here to keep me moving forward and fighting through it, but not too much where like an old man like me just gets like worn out by the whole thing. Uh, an old lady like me too. <laughs> I don't know. This is, whenever I hear my resume of like when I started in tech, I'm like, oh my gosh, these kids weren't even. I just finished teaching a master's course in Barcelona, and literally one of my students was born when I was living in Sweden. Like I was like, yeah, oh my, I could literally be his mother. It was just such a weird moment. I yes, I <laughs> I work with some some younger people too, and it's yeah. like, I mean, it keeps me keeps me refreshed. It like keeps me. That's right. Like into some things I probably, but they're like, they're, I definitely have people on my team who are literally closer in age to my older daughter than to me, I think. Yes. That's like right around. I don't want to think about that. It was, let's not do the math. No, we're fresh and cool because of our networks. Yes. Right. And I don't, I don't do math anyway. So it's like. (laughs) Matt, thank you so much for sharing your story, your wisdom, your adventures, and some best practices that have served you well along the way. I think this is really going to inspire a lot of entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs out there. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Anything for you. Oh, thank you. It's always good to chat. Thank you, Matt. All right, we'll talk soon.